0: Really proud of the efforts of of NASCAR for stepping up and wanting to, you know, be a part of change.
1: There are some people who these racist views are core to their being, and they are leaving them, and that's fine. They need to be left by NASCAR and everyone else. The stars and bars is a symbol of
0: Hate this is the most crucial time and and the time is of the essence right now in the the world that we're in. For me, it's something just has to change and that's just where a lot of guys talked about it and we started. So,
2: Y'all tell me what that flag was. I know exactly what that flag was, but I also know what that flag is. Don't know anybody coming at me with a history lesson of what that is. People act like, like I'm betraying some sort of cause or betraying their
0: DNA. Give me a break. We have to continue this message. It has to be today, tomorrow, the next day, and ten damn years from now.
1: NASCAR drives change, a Marty and McGee special on the SEC network and on ESPN radio. It is Marty McGee.
2: On ESPN Radio, the SEC Network, and Hour Two America, the ESPN app, hollering at your sports speaker, uh, your sports speaker, your smart speaker. I get a little rattled hearing that intro, man. I tell you, I didn't didn't feel as much pressure as I did after after that. It was was fantastic. Uh, We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and all guests uh, join us on the Shell Penzel Performance Line. If you listen to us in the first hour, and thank you for getting up and doing that. Um, we have been uh been playing back uh, an interview we recorded with Brad Darty uh yesterday on Friday and for folks that don't know yes this is Brad Darty the NBA all-star but also Brad Darty a lifelong uh NASCAR fan grew up going to the Asheville Speedway um, watching the Presleys and uh and ended up driving race cars himself even yes, at 611 Yeah. And, um, and, and he is, uh, is passionate about stock car racing, co-owns the race car, uh, NASCAR team now, JTG Darty. And, uh, and Marty, I'm, I'm really anxious for people to hear, um, about what you discussed with Brad as part of our conversation coming up.
0: I think this is the root of what's happening right now. I think there are conversations taking place right now. I don't think I know. Let me make that a definitive statement. There are conversations happening right now all across this country that were entirely too uncomfortable in the past, and they're still really damn uncomfortable. But this has empowered people to ask questions that they were fearful of asking in the past, and it has given uh, uh, the opportunity to be vulnerable in answering them and having that dialogue. And so I asked Brad yesterday, that as a white man, I'm 44 years old, born and raised in the rural South. How do I see the same world that a young black man from the inner city or from a a completely polar opposite upbringing that I had sees? How do we get to that common ground where we're both attempting to look at the world through one another's lens, because to me, that is tremendous progress. And the bigger question that I wondered was, when in Brad's lifetime have this many people tried to understand the world he sees and the lens through which he sees it? His answer is phenomenal.
3: That's an outstanding question. Uh, and I'll answer per- your last question first. I've never ever i'm 54 years old i have never ever seen anything like this ever um our, not you know and, and it's our world is a different place today because of the events that took place a few weeks ago
2: um
3: so with that what do you do i i, I you know it, it's interesting because I, I say this all the time because that's why you know people i'll stay out of politics and you know, I I, I'll, you know, I like jabbing my neighbors a little bit here in California because there's, you know, people who are very far left. And then I've got some buddies who are pretty far right. And so I, I'm, I'm an old blue dog Democrat from North Carolina. I'm, I'm fiscally conservative, but I believe we have to help people. We have to make sure that we take care of our elderly people. We take care of our veterans and we take care of those who've worked hard in this country to be able to retire and have a pension and live out their golden days. And then those who are, you know, have, have, have disabilities, we, we should be able to take care of all these folks. Okay? So when you start looking at how do we approach racism and how do we cross those barriers, how do we talk about inequality and those types of things, that is the problem. the, the, the solution is having conversation. But we live in such a politically correct world that we can't have conversation. Okay, and that's always going to be the barrier is the lack of communication okay we have all this stuff going on right now in the world and there's some good things that are going to come from it no doubt about it but the thing that really pisses me off and aggravates me is the majority of this will be for political gain okay and it always goes back to that it'll be for political gain you know if the left doesn't like the right they'll use it for that and if the right doesn't love the, like the left they'll use it for that and then we'll we'll go out and we'll vote. We'll do whatever we do, want to do, and and make changes and do all that stuff. And we'll be right back in the, having the same conversation in the next eight years. So it comes down to communication. If I can sit down with a group of my uh, my peers, which I do from time to time, up in Western North Carolina, and we call ourselves the Mountain Mafia. And there's about ten of <laughs> us. Uh, you know, two or three of us are African American, and the rest of the guys are Caucasian guys. These are my best buddy. And we'll sit and talk. We sit and have the most uh, unbelievable conversations. Uh, you know, one of the guys is a really, really wealthy guy, you know, blue blood guy, grew up, you know, with a lot of stuff and owned a lot of businesses. And, you know, we'll sit and talk. And he'll ask me these pertinent questions, you know. You know, he says, I've been your, the guy, he I talked to him yesterday. He says, you know, we've been friends. For 30, you know, five years, 40 years. And he said, I've seen what you've dealt with, and, and, you know, always from afar and that type of thing. And he's like, but what, what, what one thing would you change as we look back over our lives as friends that will help me understand where you're standing in, the shoes you're standing in? I said, well, for a guy like you, think about it. You know, your family, you grew up, you're a third generation of wealth. Every business that you've owned has been somewhat of a private business, correct? He said, yeah. I said, so you have no, there's no, there's no, there's no reason for you to go out and to look and to seek to hire people, well-educated African-Americans to be in your business. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, you are likely to hire people that you're comfortable with. Okay. And so that's people that look like you, think like you and talk like you. He said, well, I never thought of it like that. I said, yeah. And so that's probably not some African-American person that you come across. So it's the dialogue, guys, and it's the dialogue, and 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 so you'll never be able to completely understand what I deal with, because, or what African Americans deal with on a daily basis, and that's not your fault, you know, that's not your fault. But being willing to have the dialogue and to have empathy when you have that dialogue is the most important thing. And then the reality of it, from uh, my side of the fence, is uh, in, in our community, in African American community. We gotta do a better job as men. You know? Nope. Now I know no one wants to talk about that and people get mad and all that, But that's just the reality of it. Um we gotta do a better job. Uh you know, we got a lot of, of of young guys, young men who don't have dads. They got they got moms that do unbelievable jobs uh taking care of these young men. But it takes a man to raise a man. And and so I was thinking about think about this. Now, I don't wanna to get too far off the path, but just think about this. Think about you're a, an urban African-American kid, and and you, you have no no father figure, you have no dad, and your mom's working three jobs, and maybe you've got siblings, and trying to take care of you, and right now you're in a COVID situation, and that mom has to try to educate you. How does that happen? People don't even think about stuff like that. Think about that. This kid's struggling to to, to grasp an education uh, when school doors are open, and now all of a sudden I got I got m- my mom trying to help me with my homework or help me get my little brother or sister's homework done, and she's got to work two or three jobs. <laughs> okay? So it's, okay, and so where does that go? Uh, I told one of my best friends, Gene Ellison, this two days ago. I think one of the most, there's, and it's just small stuff, but, man, you guys know sports. We gotta have coach. We need more coaches. We need more dialogue. We need more more authoritarian figures in these young people's lives that are men, especially in the black community. Give these young people someone to look up to. And so, you know, it's little things like that. Let's spend capital on creating more, you know, more opportunities for these young kids to go and have a father figure in different types of activities. You know, and and in our community. It's the, the bottom line, and the, the most important thing is education. Education is empowerment, okay? But if, if my mom's working three jobs, and maybe i got to have a side hustle to help keep our lights on, education's probably on the back burner. So now if that happens, uh, here I am, 18, 19, 20 years of age, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to McDonald's and flip hamburgers and make 300 bucks a week, 400 bucks a week? Or am I going to go stand on the corner and sling rock and make twenty five hundred dollars a day? <laughs> you know, it, it, it becomes leadership, communication, having a true interest in these young people, and and, and it doesn't always just have to be a person of color. Now, I don't want to I don't want to get on my soapbox here too long, but it doesn't always have to be just a person of color, color either. You know, it, it's guys like you coaching little league. It's guys like you coaching, you know, basketball.
0: You know,
3: it's guys like you coaching you know, this you Mike football because I'm going to tell you guys, you guys become heroes because there's going to be some kid that's going to look at you and say, you know, hey, Coach Murray, Coach Ryan, man, you know, I don't feel like practicing today. And you're going to look at that kid and say, no, you're going to practice today and you're going to bring your school book. I want to see your report card. That accountability, man, you'll become a hero in that kid's life. That's the type of thing we need to talk about and have conversation about. We spend so much time worrying about, you know, whether or not Donald Trump's a racist or whether or not Joe Biden's capable. We get caught up in all that crap and then the celebrities get involved and all that stuff and it just goes round and round and round. Okay. It doesn't have to happen at that level. It needs to happen at the state level. And so if it happens at the state level, I think it gives us a better opportunity.
2: Brad Darty, you you talking about dialogue. And listen, you, you, wow. you've been a you've been a good friend to us both for a long time, and and that's been based on dialogue. These folks, these conversations that we're having with Brad right now, we have had with him sitting in the infield. We've had with him sitting in the studio in Connecticut. We've had with him on the telephone. I sat I sat in a Walmart parking lot talking about Bubba Wallace three years ago. Yeah, that's right. And I sat there for two. I think we talked for two and a half hours. So we 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 thank you so much, Brad Darty, for the dialogue today. And um and let's let's keep this glacier moving, man.
3: Hey man, you guys are great. I've known you guys a long time. You guys get it. Uh, what you do, your work is both of you is just outstanding. It's thoughtful, it's thought provoking, and uh, I appreciate you letting me come on. And uh, we'll see you guys at the racetrack.
2: Hey, thought provoking is what that entire conversation <laughs> was. And uh, by the way, that was on the show. Uh, Pensil Performance Line. Penzoil Synthetic Motor oils are made from natural gas. It gives you unbeatable oh, engine protection. Right. The proof is in the Pensil based on Sequence 4A wear test using SAE 5W30. And uh, we are going to discuss further what we just heard from Brad Darty. And we're also, at the bottom of the hour, going to talk to the grandson of Wendell Scott, the first and one of only two full-time African-American drivers in the history of the NASCAR Cup series. It's Marty McGee on ESPN Radio and the SEC Network. Marty yeah, McGee everybody. on ESPN radio and the SEC network and by hollering at your smart speaker to play ESPN radio. We are presented by Progressive well, Insurance, like all guests, and we just had Brad Darty oh, on for a, for an amazing 45 minutes the sea, on the Shell Penzo performance line. Warwick Scott. Just unbelievable. Are going to join us at the bottom of the hour. And, uh, yeah, and that's where I want to go because, um, I mean, you and I were in two different cities. Brad was in a third city. But, dude, I could sense you through the phone line and the look on your face because it was the same look that was on my face. But that's – Brad Darty brings it every conversation. If you ask him what he have for breakfast, he brings it. But in this situation, this is a lifetime. You can hear the relief, and you can hear the still uh, that level of surprise at yep. what has happened, it transpired in NASCAR over the last week. He's just so awesome. I mean, he's a great
0: friend to both of us and, and really gave us, in terms of our professional abilities, a lot of respect and perspective throughout our time together at ESPN that, that I personally, I'm not speaking for you on this, but I hadn't earned yet, and, and he was, was still just so kind to me and, and, and helpful, really helpful. Because when you're, when you're just making your way and kind of getting started, there's a lot of insecurity there and you don't even know if you belong. Do they even damn want me at dinner? And he was always like, come on, man, let's go and, and was always just so welcoming. And that really filled me up and gave me confidence. And I'm, I'm always going to be indebted to him for that. But you know, again, back to the conversations that are being had and, and that people are willing to have now that they, maybe never even considered having in the past, and things that I've learned in the last couple of weeks that I've done. I've done things that I had no idea would ever be considered a slight or any kind of of compromise of someone's either abilities or whatnot. Like, for example, I've said on television myself, Many times, I don't. I mean, many times, that a young college athlete, African American college athlete, that I've covered, you know, his amazing ability to articulate this or articulate that, or man, he is such a well-spoken young man. I said those things as a compliment. Like I love talking to this person. Well, I never had any idea until conversations I've had in the last week that some people. Consider that to be offensive. Some people hear that, and that is a backhanded compliment, or, or even worse. I Look, I, straight up ignorance. I never knew that. I would never say anything to hurt one of the athletes that I've covered feelings or make them feel lesser in any way. I would never do that. And so learning that I had, uh, I, I don't know if I made those specific athletes feel that way, but the fact that I could have. Man, it gutted me, McGee. I, I sat there for a long time at my desk in my house and just pondered what may I have done that that was done in in with with no ill will or any harm meant, what maybe have I done to, to hurt somebody? And those are the introspective thoughts I'm having right now.
2: And I, I believe and I I'm excited toward the end of the show when we have Clinton Yates on because we had him on two weeks ago. And what we talked with him about then was the start of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And as difficult a time as this has been for millions, or really for all Americans, over the last couple of weeks, um, it, what, what Clinton Yates talked to us about was, starting the conversation and us having that conversation with him on this show and now with the perspective of a couple of weeks and we talk to him about what do you see where do you find hope when you look into the future immediate and also 40 years down the road and when we have Clinton on later on in the show uh he's gonna we're gonna ask him about that about the perspective Art, you said you wanted this to happen over the next couple of weeks Is it happening? And I believe that the answer is yes because you're having those conversations. I'm having those conversations. Brad just talked about with you in the interview from Friday about the difficulty of those conversations, but they're taking place. And I've seen it You know, after my column about the Confederate flag on Wednesday night and the conversations I've had with people from other sports, our colleagues that would never – hockey, NBA, whatever – never considered watching NASCAR. Now they want to talk about what that is. And another voice coming up, Warwick Scott, grandson of NASCAR Hall of Famer Wendell Scott. Straight ahead. Smart McGee on ESPN Radio, the SEC Network, ESPN app, and by asking your smart speaker to play ESPN Radio, it has been a, it's been a pretty, it's been a thought provoking, uh, dialogue, discussion, conversation over the first uh, half of the show, and, uh, and we're about to continue that conversation. But first, it is time for your Sports Center update. Major League Baseball submitted their latest proposal to the players, the fifth overall between the sides, calling for a 72 game season and for players to max out at 80% of their prorated salaries. A source told our friend Jeff Passon that the sides are still far apart on money. With the MLBPA remaining intent on receiving a full prorated share of player salaries regardless of the number of games played, the players will not accept this offer. Mm. Houston
0: suspended voluntary workouts after an uptick in positive coronavirus tests. The university said six symptomatic student-athletes in various sports tested positive for the virus and that coupled with a recent surge in positive tests within the city, led it to suspend activities. Houston is the first school to do so after bringing student-athletes back to campus.
2: Hey, if you're missing basketball, tune in tonight for an NBA Classic Game 2 of the 2011 NBA Finals between the Mavs and the Heat, presented by AutoZone. Coverage begins at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Uh, a quick NASCAR history lesson for you out there. Bubba Wallace is not the first... Uh, black full time racer in the history, in the 72 year history of NASCAR's Cup Series, its top division. Um, the first was Wendell Scott of Danville, Virginia, uh, who raced throughout the 1960s and early 1970s, won a race in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, was denied the opportunity to go to victory lane, uh, was denied the opportunity to hold the trophy in his hands, and, uh, and is now a NASCAR. Hall of Famer, and I'm uh, I'm so excited to bring on our friend, Warwick Scott, grandson of Wendell Scott and the CEO of the Wendell Scott Foundation. Uh, Warwick, welcome in to Marty McGee.
1: Hey, Marty, Ryan, man. How y'all guys doing? Good morning to you all. Good morning to global citizens and everyone that's listening, you know, to ESPN this morning. Feels good to be here.
2: Well, it's always good to hear your voice, and we're going to start with the question that we both want to ask you. Ever since five PM on Wednesday, okay, which is right there as the Cup Series is getting ready to race at the Martinsville Speedway, the current track that I equate so much with your father, just down the road from Danville. Right. Uh, the last time I saw you was at that racetrack. Um, right. When when you heard that NASCAR was banning the Confederate flag from its speedways, what was your reaction? What was your family's reaction?
1: My, my initial reaction was uh, <clears throat> slight shock. Slight shock, I mean, when I say slight, meaning,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, I, I, it wouldn't be right of me to try to paint a perception or a picture. And I think, Ryan, you spoke to this on ESPN First Aid, that, uh, you know, members of the NASCAR family, by far and wide, are in support of or condone, you know, that flag. So when I say slight shock, I mean, you know, the people that made the decision, you know, there's no direct guarantee that they were pro-Confederate flag in the first place. There's no there's no direct guarantee. Now, the shock part came, the direct shock became, came from, my life experience within the sport, (laughs) you know, and, and, and when we think about what's happening right now, if you just do a quick Google search of Wendell Scott's name, it shines a big old light on the fact that this should have been done long ago Um, based upon what he endured and then the lack of progression for the African-American within the sport. You know, um, so please as well, though, let me say that, please. I would say, you know, throughout throughout our life, we have hosted many family and friends and colleagues and business partners at NASCAR races, and it's just always the one thing that has to be discussed or assessed, you know, and it takes away from the activity that's happening in the pits and the Crowd experience and things of that nature. You know, it's it's I remember when Bill left the race um in Atlanta, waste management, and um one of my best friends from college, Shaw University, um, he and I went to the race, never been to a race before. And he just the look on his face when he rode through the infield and saw all those Confederate flags everywhere. I mean, you know, he he had just never seen anything like that. And it automatically pulled away from the racing experience before the, before the race even began. It automatically pulled away from the racing experience for them, you know.
0: Uh, Warwick, how are you doing, my man? Doing um, doing good. We appreciate you being here. Uh, just listening to you discuss what it's like to see that flag, I noted earlier that growing up in the rural south, I saw it often, but I'm a, I'm a mm-hmm. white man. I just never mm-hmm. – it just never – that, that – that acute emotion and pain that you guys see when you see that or feel when you see that flag just didn't, that was not part of my life. And right. as I've grown and become more worldly and and whatnot and, and educated myself, mm-hmm. I have great empathy for that. I just would like to ask you if you could describe for me and for our listeners, like what, what do you feel when you drive into a, a NASCAR track or did drive into a NASCAR track and, and see that flag. What is that emotion?
1: The, the the feeling that comes over me personally is commercialized oppression. You know, that's the feeling that comes over me. That's the way I have to break down that schematic to my sons, Warwick and Wendell. You know that because you know, let's not take the general public's intelligence for granted. We know what happened with the Confederate war. You know, we know exactly how that ended. But for some reason, um, one of the greatest sports in America was providing this huge platform, you know, for those flags to be commercialized and sensationalized. And and it just felt like the punch in the gut that you knew you were going to get at some point throughout the day. Let me describe it that way. You know, when you're on a roller coaster, know it's that part of the roller coaster where you're gonna go down and it makes your heart drop. At some point in the day you're gonna get it. You're gonna get reminded of it. You're gonna be and then I've always taken the stance of wow man I feel like this and I'm Wendell's grandson. Now, how do other people feel? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've always you know I've always you know I've always taken that position and you know I just I want NASCAR to 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 really do better. That's what I mean. I want them to really do better. And I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, the flag coming down is a huge step. It's going to take the NASCAR fan base to continue to support NASCAR, you know, through this change. And it's going to take, uh, you know, new fans to come into the sport, the casual fan that may sit at home and just watch the race. And once we figure out this pandemic situation with the COVID and you know, things kind of reopen the and re You know, that casual fan, you know, if you ever said the reason really you don't go to the race is because of the flag, then now you should come on to the race. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and enjoy yeah. it. And I, I dare, I say there are millions of people out there who had taken that position. You, you know, I mean, you know, the, the race, race is, a, is an amazing, the, it's, it's, an, it's like an amazing barrier amongst humans. You know, Martin. When you first start working in the sport, I was almost scared to approach you because of why your southern well, because of your southern draw and because of what? what I saw within the sport. You see, those are stereotypes that lead to division. Now once I the first time I ever talked to you and met you, I said, Oh man, Marty is like the coolest guy ever. Now I swear by you you great graduate of Raptor University, and my daughter runs track and rap, and I talk about you all the time to her. I point to you as a leader and somebody who you should take your education and your academic series because you can transition in life through sports. Like I, like, I use you as an example. But the dichotomy of NASCAR and the culture of it makes African-Americans like myself stand office to most people. Because for us, when we come to the NASCAR Hall of Fame ceremonies, when we go to races and stuff, we're like in a fishbowl. And you all have been at those ceremonies, so you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. You know, and it's, and, it's, and, and 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 as NASCAR changes, as NASCAR reworks their culture, I want them to pay extra special close attention to all aspects of it, because no one would be able to explain that or help them arrange that better than us.
2: Warwick Scott joining us here, uh, grandson of NASCAR Hall of Famer Wendell Scott, um, the first and one of only two black drivers to have a full-time job in the Cup Series, and and Wendell Scott, for folks that don't know, I mean, did it as grassroots as it could possibly be done, Uh, built his cars, worked on his cars, the family was the pit crew, and and Warwick, you and I talked at length a few years ago when Bubba Wallace was about to make his Daytona 500 debut. We did, Absolutely. A, big, we did a big store on E60, and you, you and your family were so, so gracious with your time. And what we talked about then was you, you as a family have become so close to Bubba over the years. Right. And we're there to, there to celebrate with him when he won in the truck series at Martinsville just up the road from, from Danville. Um, what has it meant for you to watch him and what he has done by taking the point on this over the last couple of weeks? Because it's the potential that we talked about that he had that if he was given the opportunity and the platform to do it.
1: You know, that's a great question. You know, the first time I ever heard Darrell's name was from my uncle Wendell Jr., who at the time was working very strong with, with, with NASCAR Drive for Diversity. Ryan, you're probably familiar with that passing time. Um the first time I ever heard heard Daryl's name, he was racing in Callaway, Virginia, Franklin County, which is the last tract that my grandfather ever raced that I was there. And so I just you know, the Scott family, we believe in spiritual signs and synergy. You know, we firm believers in Christ, man. We believe in God, right? We just believe that signs are there for a reason, and I always thought the way I discovered him through that last stop on my grandfather's, you know, career. I always knew he was destined to be successful. I I have struggled oftentimes when he first started in the sport. See, African-Americans have not had anyone to root for long term since my grandfather. And that is no disrespect to Willie T. Riz or Bill Lester. Both gentlemen, in my opinion, are fabulous individuals. Okay? But long term, they've never had opportunity to, you know, root for that guy. And so when Bubba comes into the sport, he's dealing with probably, you know, two or or three different time frames. He's dealing with people that manifested in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 60s. He's dealing with all of these different groups of people who've never had a chance to group anybody. So then he starts getting judged by what kind of music he listens to or, you know, what kind of demeanor he has and all of these things taken away from his actual talent. So I almost look at him as a little brother. You know what I mean? I can't tell you how many intense conversations or, or times that I have campaigned on his behalf without him even knowing it to some really high end people saying, Hey, before he was with, Uh, Mr. Petty, in motorsports, you know, hey, this guy can drive. Give him a chance. If he gets a chance, just like my grandfather, he's going to win some races. You know, as much as I enjoy the distinction of my grandfather being the only African American to win in the NASCAR race, that's time for that to change. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, 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 you know, when Darrell drives, man, you know, for me, it was an extension of my life because my family, man, you know, my cousins, you know, the younger generation, man, we've essentially been locked out of the sport. Make no mistake about it.
3: Hmm. We don't
1: know the other NASCAR family, grandchildren, and stuff like that. We've never been introduced to them. We've never been in the same social bubble as them. We've been locked out, man. So bubble comes along, and for me, I have sons. But now I'm like, praise God, because now if my son says, hey, dad, I want to take interest in motorsports, I'd like to take a lap around the track. You know what I mean? Maybe I can pick up the phone and call somebody, and maybe he'll be able to expose my children. And I'm Wendell Scott's grandson. Maybe he'll be able to expose my children to the sport. What we do with the Wendell Scott Foundation, we work with at-risk youth in the most far-reaching places and what many people call the trenches. That's where we go. We go where those children have been written off. We go get those kids. And we expose them to everything, every educational opportunity and college opportunities and direct mentoring, which is an amazing thing. But we also expose them to motorsports to iRacing, through race car simulation. And and because and because of my grandfather's legacy, we're trying to identify the next engineer or the next rocket scientist or the next NASCAR driver. Esports, the reason I was so upset with what Kyle said, what Kyle Lawson said is because we literally use that platform to work with inner city and rural youth because the esports component is the one thing that could potentially level the playing field. We keep hearing about NASCAR about money. You need money to race in NASCAR. You need money. To race. That's true. NASCAR is also about, about being chosen. Mark Davis never got a chance. Roger Carruth is right there at Winston-Salem State University right now. Is he going to get the shot? You know, so when we're talking about reworking, right, reworking the process, reworking the culture, the time is now. Because what, you know, working with youth, what I see is a lot of that racial divide, mumbo-jumbo, that older generations are living within, generation right now, they're
2: past that. Amen.
1: They're past that.
2: I, 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 I see it with my know. daughter. Yeah, Marty sees it with his kids. I mean, we we see. Yeah. It. I, I, all, my daughter said, "If you old people will just leave us enough to fix, we're going to fix it." And, uh, right. and and yeah, and, and you're identifying them. Warwick Scott, uh, we can't thank you enough for your time this morning. We we could do this Absolutely. all morning. Yeah, it, yes, uh, You're a good friend, and we're proud of you. And um, and, and we both have thought about you a lot this week as much as anyone and uh thank you well, for you making know, I'm, the time for I'm us
1: a, i'm a phone call i'm a phone call away um you know and i want to say i want to say if, if you guys would please allow me this time to just say i want to wish uh all of the fathers out there happy father's day that's coming up um really important holiday in the african-american community our families have been ravaged you know through the penal system many african-american families have been broken up you know Many, many people I've grown up with have been incarcerated for various different reasons that were not on the right side of right. And I just want to take this time to wish all the fathers out there, black, white, green, purple, or gray. I want to wish all the fathers a happy father's day. And I also want to take time to acknowledge Juneteenth is coming up. Very important, very important holiday, you know, within the African American culture. And, you know, when we begin to acknowledge everything about everybody, that's when we can begin to heal. You know, so thanks for the time and opportunity. You guys know the phone call away.
2: You good man work, Scott. Appreciate thanks. you, man. Thank you. Thank you. James Steele, will you be will you be watching uh or, or listening to uh we'll listen. to the Royals and the uh and the Giants from game seven of the two thousand fourteen World Series? Oh absolutely. For okay. sure. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might. Did I wake you up right there? Were you were you working? We're wearing, we're wearing, we're wearing games out this, today on the math. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's, yeah, math, math problems galore today. We're, uh, we're doing math on the fly. I don't know. I didn't get into a radio to, to do math. So that should teach all you kids out there. I try to tell my kids all the time, dad, I'll never use this mess. Well, you never know when you might need an algebraic equation as a radio producer. Just ask, just ask Jamie buckets because yeah. he'll tell
2: you. Ask James ask James when he's, uh, when, when Marty and McGee are, and rightfully so, because Warwick Scott was, as we knew he would be, because we both know him, just amazing. Um, but, you know, I can just let y'all know we went a little heavy on that segment, and rightfully so. I could have just left the line open for the next hour. I, I love, I love Warwick and, and, and that family and the history of what they had to deal with. Um, it's just, uh, I mean, it was a movie starring Richard Pryor. Uh, and it was, uh, it's, it's one of those true life stories that, that's better than any movie. And, uh, and we both got into ask that you, family.
0: You know, for those of you guys who may not be familiar with Wendell Scott's victory and, and everything that happened in the aftermath and how originally it took NASCAR two days or three days, right? McGee, they were going to give the win to Buck Baker. I think, but he wound yep. up being a couple of laps down That's actually correct. in the race. And then the Scott did not get the trophy for Wendell's victory at Jacksonville, Florida until 20 years after Wendell had died. He died in 1990. The family finally received the victory trophy in 2010. I would love to know. I wanted to ask Warwick what that day was like. What, what was it like when they held that in their hands? Because that must have been such a such an emotional moment. I mean, he won in 1963. They got the trophy in 2010.
2: Yeah, it, that's it's, crazy. And I've talked I mean, to them, uh, I, and I've talked to them about it, and, it, and it, it was bittersweet because it was this moment, but it also for not so much for Warwick, but for his father and his uncle. Um, You know, for Frank and Wendell Jr., it was. It was this moment, but they, it was still a moment denied, you know? And there's, yep. it, it, they were happy, but they were still sad because their father was gone and, um, and he wasn't able to have that moment he didn't, he didn't, because he Victor Lane's the greatest place in the world and he was denied it.